invite you to turn to our, our scripture reading this morning. Um, you can find a portion of it over on page three of your bulletin. Uh, this is what we'll read, verses one to eight, uh, but, but it's really the, the entire chunk of the chapter, the vast majority of it, one to 21, that we're studying. Uh, so if you have either one of the black Bibles or want to pull a Bible up on your phone, or you're also welcome to bring your own Bible each week, especially in this series of numbers that could be uh, very helpful because we're going to try to take some big chunks of Scripture that sometimes we're not able to read completely or print completely. Uh, so we're back in the book of Numbers, back in that period of God's working with his people in the wilderness. Right, His Old Testament people, they have been delivered out of slavery but they're not yet in the promised land. They're in the wilderness, providing this great picture for us of, of really where we are uh, as God's people today. Christ has come, and through his work, through faith, we're set free from sin and slavery to sin, but yet we're not let, yet in the promised land of heaven. We're in this difficult wilderness, and, and God's work in, among his people in the Old Testament gives us a, a good encouragement of how he's working among us Today, and that'll be true as we look at chapter 6 and the vow of the Nazarites. Uh, this, this, this strange uh, opportunity that Old Testament Israelites had to take this special vow to the Lord. And we'll look at what it was and what it might have to do with us. So let's let's read together. We'll read the first eight verses, but then I'll, we'll give a quick summary of what, what the rest of the passage has to do. But again, this is, this is God's word. Numbers chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head, until the time is complete for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. <clears throat> he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother, for his brother uh, or sister. If they die, uh, shall make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So you see what this vow is all about? Uh, separation to the Lord, three key things you're supposed to stay away from. Stay away from things having to do with wine, away from cutting your hair, away from dead bodies. The next section, verses 9 to 12, brings up the situation of what happens if you accidentally get near a dead body. Right? Someone dies suddenly right next to you. What then? And if you look at the details, there's a prescription of various sacrifices that have to be offered to uh, ceremonially cleanse yourself. And you're supposed to shave your hair that you've been growing, uh, offer that to the Lord, and then start the vow period over again. Right? Verses 9 to 10. What happens if you accidentally come near a dead body? Then, 13 to 20, the end of the passage, describes what happens when the, the period for the vow is over. 
Uh, you vowed to these prohibitions for a period of time, six months maybe, who knows. Uh, but then that six months is up. Then what? Well, verses 13 to 20 describes another series of sacrifices at the end uh, and, uh, and how you offer that to the Lord and what that uh, is to look like. Well, let's pray together and then look at, at God's word together. Lord, we're thankful that your word is good and true and useful and we're thankful that it shows us the glory of your love and your salvation, Jesus, and the glorious calling you have for your people. So strengthen, equip, and give us understanding, even here. Work in each heart, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Amen. So, have you ever been part of a church where the, the Sunday morning routine involved a children's sermon? You ever been a part of a church like that? The pastor, somewhere in the midst of it, calls the kids up forward, and, and they all sit right around the pastor, and he gives a little, a little children's sermon, a little short, simple explanation of a passage or a concept. You, if you've seen that, you know how it often works. It often includes some kind of object lesson. pastor pulls out some kind of visual thing, some object uh, or toy or something that you can see, and then and uses that in the lesson. Uh, I was actually uh, used to visit a church occasionally when I was a kid uh, where the, the pastor, uh, we'd go on vacation, here's this old country church, and the pastor had this idea, he'd do the children's sermon, but instead of him bringing the object, they would bring an object. So all the kids just kind of knew, you brought something from home, and you'd surprise the pastor. He'd like pick one of the kids, and it'd be this surprise object, and the pastor decided on the spot he was going to come up with a children's sermon. It, it was very brave. Uh, sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Uh, but you get the overall idea. Why go through all this? Part of the, the key is children can learn when there's a, especially better, when there's a tangible, concrete thing to connect abstract truth with something solid and tangible. In many ways, that's what God does through the Old Testament ceremonial system. An object, tangible thing that shows God's people deeper spiritual truth. In many ways, God ministering to his people Israel here in the wilderness is him interacting with them in their spiritual childhood. And on their way to growth and maturity, there is an emphasis in this childhood stage upon object lessons, sermon illustrations, uh, tangible uh, demonstrations of even more important spiritual concepts. And I think that seems to be the, the main take-home point of the, the Nazarites, uh, studying it in context. You remember where we've been in Numbers, uh, especially this recent, recent uh, couple weeks, it's all about what's going on there in the camp. God's people are camped in the wilderness, and the whole point and focal point is there is God dwelling right among his people, and God, the holy God, among his people. And then talking about how that affects uh, the, rest of the, the rest of the camp. Well, they're supposed to reflect the holiness of God. To be in his holy presence, they're supposed to reflect that holiness. And it's right in the midst of describing the various details of that that we get this group of individuals described uh, who embody holiness in a, in a special, unique way. And the point seems to be not, wow, those guys are impressive. That's great for them. 
Uh, the point seems to be that these individuals are a kind of object lesson, a kind of sermon illustration, tangible view of, here's what God calls his entire people to be, holy unto him. And we get to see part of what that looks like in a very visual, concrete way. Uh, and that also begins to see how we might fit into the equation. Uh, not studying the Nazarites so we can copy what they do, right? Don't, don't cancel your hairdresser appointment or your barber appointment. That's not the point. But we'll see this actually fulfilled in Christ, then becoming to us both of uh, a concrete illustration of his work and also who he calls us to be in him. But to get there, we have to first understand how this worked in the Old Covenant world. So first talking about just Nazarite basics. Uh, and the, the key point here is really repeated again and again, the idea of separate to the Lord, holy unto him. Perhaps you even heard that phrase repeated as we, as we went. Separation, holy. And again, you have an individual, a man or a woman, uh, who makes this vow. They do it completely voluntarily. The law doesn't demand this of anyone, so they, they, they sign up for it, they volunteer for it. And you get that focus there uh, in verse 2, <clears throat> and then repeated throughout. When a man or a woman makes a special vow to the Lord, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. Uh, so there's, one, there's some of the language that's repeated again and again. Separate. Separation. Some 12 different times in the passage that language is used. Even in the very word Nazarite, uh, it, it, it literally means a separated one. Right? So it's this idea of separation, but not physical separation. It's not that the Nazarite, he's a guy who goes off and lives like a hermit away from everybody. Actually, the, the idea is he's actually right in the midst of people, uh, which is why he's got to be really careful about what he gets near. Uh, right? So he's right in the midst of people. So it's not a physical separation. It's separate to the Lord. Right? That's, what, that's the phrase, to separate himself to the Lord, which is why you can start to see where the other connected phrase fits in, the idea of holy to the Lord. Because what does the word holy mean when it's applied to when it's applied to people? Those set apart for God. Uh, those set apart. You see the intertwining concepts. Separate to the Lord. Set apart for the Lord. And what these individuals do in a very special, unique way is dedicate, consecrate themselves uh, in this special period of time unto the Lord and unto his service. And it, came, it took a very concrete form uh, that there were these, this separate holiness uh, set apart for the Lord that uh, was to manifest itself in these three prohibitions. We should uh, be careful to note that God sets the terms here, right? In other words, God tells you as a Nazarite what you're to stay away from. This isn't like the, they get to make it up. Like, you know what? I'd like to dedicate to myself to the Lord for this next six months, so I won't eat any sugar for six months. This might not be a bad thing to do, but that's not the, the idea here. God's setting the terms. It, God brings the object lesson uh, because he, he has it designed carefully. Uh, okay, so let's try to understand what he, what he says and why he might design it. Let's talk about the specific prohibitions. No wine, no haircuts, no dead bodies. Ceremonial world, so we're thinking... Spiritual truth in concrete pictures. Uh, spiritual truth in concrete pictures. How do these specific prohibitions 
give us illustrations of what it would be like to be set apart to the Lord, holy unto the Lord. Now, it's hard to be dogmatic, like 100% sure of every little detail, because God doesn't give the detailed descriptions here of what he has in mind in the object lesson. Though I think we can, in the context of the rest of Scripture, uh, get a, something of an idea of where this is headed, what the, what the point is, what the object lesson is all about. So let's, let's, let's work our way through these prohibitions. So the first one that's mentioned, uh, separate from wine. Uh, stay away from wine. Actually, it's stay away from anything even vaguely having to do with wine. Right? So it's no grapes, no grape juice. Uh, throw out your grapeseed oil. Everything even vaguely having to do uh, with, with wine. Now, of course, uh, God does condemn drunkenness throughout, throughout the Bible. Um, but the, the point here doesn't seem to be stay away from wine because wine is sinful. Um, actually, you'll see at the end of the passage, it, it, it says as a part of that completion uh, process bows over, oh, now the Nazarite can drink wine again. Uh, so the, the symbolism doesn't seem to be wine is bad or, or even a symbol of something bad. Uh, probably what this taps into is, is an even more prominent theme in Scripture, which is wine as a symbol of joy and celebration and, and earthly blessings from the Lord to be, to be enjoyed. Uh, throughout Scripture, uh, when, when God's people in the Old Covenant speak of, of God blessing his people, he provides grain and wine and oil. Grain and wine and oil. Right? It's this picture of celebration, God, God's earthly blessings to his people to be, uh, to be enjoyed. In fact, God in the Old Covenant pictures paradise as everybody gets their own grapevine. Right? So it's, it's this symbol of, of, of celebration, of life, of earthly blessings from the Lord. So what the Nazarite is doing, uh, again, guided by God for a period of time, in, in refraining from wine and things to do with wine, the picture seems to be a, a, voluntary, a voluntary sacrifice of even good things. Uh, a, a willing putting aside of earthly blessings that are good and legitimate in order putting aside the good for something better, dedicating oneself to the Lord, uh, even, even through sacrifice. Uh, a prohibition against wine. Prohibition against uh, cutting your hair. Okay, this one's a little more tricky, but probably the symbolism here, hair is that part of your body that's, that's always growing, right? If you've got hair, it's going to keep growing until you die. It's just uh, hair grows. And so hair is a picture of, of life. And probably the idea is that you refrain from cutting your hair is the idea of, of you're going to give up control over the details of your life, right? If you stop cutting your hair... You're saying, basically, it's going to go however it goes. In other words, God is completely in charge of where it goes and how long it gets and what it looks like. It's God's got it. And so the symbolism seems to be uh, a, a, a concrete demonstration of, God, you have complete control over the details of my life. Uh, as one scholar puts it, it's a vivid symbol of giving God the reins of your life. Right? So as opposed to having the reins in your hand and you're controlling it, it's, here God, you, you take it. You take it. Stay away from dead bodies. Now this one, this one is especially clear. We've even talked about it uh, in, in past weeks. Uh, death. 
Death makes you unclean in the ceremonial world. Uh, why? Because death is not a natural happy thing. Uh, death is ugly. Death is uh, in this world because the ugliness of sin has come into God's world. Uh, and so, and so it's, this, it's this picture of, well, what the Bible actually says death is, the wages of sin. Uh, and so uh, staying away from dead bodies becomes this picture of, uh, of staying away from the unclean and unholy and those things that defile and pollute. Uh, it's a picture of dedicating oneself to God by fleeing those things that bring death, uh, even, even sin and ugliness in the world. So you have very specific prohibitions that God gives, right? Uh, the Nazarite doesn't make it up as he goes along. God dictates it. Very specific symbolism. Uh, all the idea to reflect uh, consecrating oneself to God. Uh, having oneself as set apart, holy unto the Lord. We could also very quickly say, uh, clearly this is serious business. So here, thinking about verses 9 through 12. Remember we said 9 through 12 is all about what happens if you accidentally get near a dead body. And for something that's just kind of an accident, you, you didn't do it on purpose, it's quite a big deal. Uh, a serious amount of sacrifices, it's costly to cleanse yourself, and then you're supposed to shave your head and start the whole process over from the beginning. Uh, right? So if you have six months, you've dedicated yourself to the Lord, and in the fifth month, uh, somebody dies next to you, you cut your hair, start over at day one. So if nothing else, you get the idea, wow, this is serious business. Um, and then quickly, the, the final section, uh, verses 13 to 20, which is all about, what about when those six months are up? Or whatever the period of time is. What about when the vow is over? And again, there's a series of additional sacrifices. Uh, you cut your hair and offer it up to, up to the Lord. There's this interesting addition to this process, which is a specific kind of sacrifice that wasn't mentioned before. And that's the peace offering. The peace offering. Now, the peace offering had a very particular thrust to it because it was the only offering in the Old Testament world where you got to keep some of the meat of the animal that was sacrificed. Uh, you got to keep it, and you ate it with your family. You ate it before the Lord. So the peace offering was this picture of not dealing with sin and ugly stuff, but the picture of celebration, the picture of joy, celebrating with God's people and with the Lord, and so God says, have a peace offering, essentially have a party. And, and it also then follows it up with verse 20, and now the Nazarite can drink wine. So you get the idea. After this period of, of, of sacrifice, of even putting aside good pleasures and struggle, here is this celebration at the end uh, of joy and, and God's blessings on his people. Okay, so what do we do with this? Well, let's first ask what Israel was supposed to do with this. Uh, as, we, as we tried to say before, in context of the whole Old Testament, and especially the book of Numbers in this section, the idea doesn't just seem to be, oh, these are a cool group of people. You know, wow, good for those Nazarites. Let's go on with daily life. But the Nazarites seeming to be an illustration, an object lesson, of really what the entire nation was to embody. Not in some outward way, but again, a, a tangible illustration of who they were to be. Uh, what did God say about his people? Well, here's, here's Exodus 19, 
They've just come out of Egypt, and they're all gathered together, and God says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? Remember that phrase of the Nazareth, holy to the Lord. And here God is saying to the whole people, you are my holy people. You are my treasured possession. So the Nazarites then are, are this picture of really what the entire nation was to be. Each and every Israelite was to be. Holy unto God. Uh, separate. Uh, not just in some physical way, uh, but, but, but separate from those things that bring death, different from the nations, as God will, will say in his commandments. Yeah, not worshiping the idols of the nations. You're, you're my possession, so your hope and your trust and your joy is in the Lord. Uh, separate from all the, the unclean, defiling sins of the, of the world around and the world inside. Uh, separate from that, you're my holy people. And so the Nazarites then become this, this picture, this illustration of what the whole nation was to be. Now the problem that the, uh, that the Old Testament history gives us is Israel didn't do so well with this. In fact, they were pretty miserable failures at living wholly unto the Lord. Uh, they don't do this, uh, living as God's special people. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this, talk about object lessons, uh, would be the most famous Nazarite there is. You know who the most famous Nazarite there is in the Bible? Uh, in terms of the one actually named as a Nazarite, there's not many, uh, and that's Samson. Because you remember Samson, right? Samson, strong guy. God says he's a Nazarite, actually from birth. Special kind of Nazarite. Uh, but you read the story of, of Samson, uh, Judges 13 to 16, and you realize he is not a very good Nazarite. In fact, uh, he specifically and fairly flagrantly breaks each and every one of those prohibitions. Right? We find him hosting a drinking party uh, for his Philistine uh, in-laws. Uh, we find him practically daring Delilah, Delilah to have his hair cut off. And we have him eating from a, uh, from a corpse and touching corpses uh, for weapons. Uh, he, he flagrantly breaks each and every one of those prohibitions which is a reflection of what his life is morally. Uh, he doesn't live as one set apart from the Lord, uh, but instead uh, he, he sadly is involved in all the death and darkness uh, that the people of God are supposed to separate themselves from. And in the context of Judges, uh, the, the point is, yeah, this is what the nation sadly has, is coming to. Uh, this is what the nation looks like. They're supposed to be God's people set apart, but they look just like the world around. Uh, they're involved in the same kinds of darkness. They're not living as a holy people unto the Lord. Now, it'd be great to say that was just an Israelite problem, and we've gotten over that. But sadly, this is our problem too, isn't it? Uh, it it's, a, it's a sermon illustration of, <clears throat> of our great struggle uh, as, as people in our day. Uh, not in the outward sense of, of we cut our hair when we shouldn't, no, but the deeper spiritual issue of God created uh, people to be his, uh, to, to love and reflect him and his glory and his goodness, to walk in the ways of uprightness and righteousness, and all of us, each one of us, fall short of the glory of God. Uh, each one of us touches the things of death uh, in, in, our, in our lives in terms of sin. Each one of us lives not for the glory of God, 
uh, dedicated to him, but lives for our own glory. So what hope is there? What, what hope is there for Israel? What hope is there for us? Right? Clearly, us trying to be, in our behavior, good enough for God is not working. So what hope is there? Which is, well, the hope that there only is and always is in Scripture. Uh, it's not what we do, but what God has done for us. And it's the ultimate Nazarite in Scripture is Jesus himself. Here's, here's our Nazarite fulfillment. Uh, it's God's holy servant, Jesus. Jesus really is the ultimate Nazarite. Not in the outward sense. In fact, Jesus is, seems to go out of his way to break all the prohibitions of the Nazarites. All right? he, he, far from staying away from wine, uh, he actually, at a wedding, transforms water into about 750 gallons of wine. Uh, at the Last Supper, he, he hands out wine to his, to his disciples and says that the people of God are to do this in remembrance of him. Uh, so it's not in that outward way. We have no evidence that he, he kept his hair uncut. And he actually touches quite a few dead bodies in his life, or touching them to heal them. But this, this doesn't, shouldn't surprise us, because with the coming of Jesus, the age of, of shadow, uh, an external symbol, is being fulfilled in him. And, and the Nazarite fulfillment in Jesus is, is powerful and profound. Think of not the outward, but the inward with Jesus. Right? What, for example, what, what that prohibition from wine was supposed to represent. Uh, the, the putting aside of, of even good uh, blessings uh, from the Lord to sacrificially uh, dedicate yourself to him. That's the entire earthly story of Jesus, isn't it? That here is the eternal son having every right to all the glories of heaven. And yet voluntarily, like the Nazarite, uh, coming in human flesh, putting aside all those legitimate uh, uh, well-deserved glories, coming not just as any uh, earthly individual, uh, but, but, but at the life of a servant. As he himself says, he doesn't even have a home, a place to lay his head. Right? It it's, 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 doesn't even have the legitimate, the legitimate earthly joys that, that the, the animals enjoy. And yet ultimately, of course, going to the cross. There's the ultimate voluntary sacrifice, the voluntary putting aside of legitimate uh, real earthly things, Jesus gives up his entire life. And it's not pointless. It's not just an outward show, right? He's going to lay down his life for his people and fulfill the Father's will. Fulfilling the Father's will. There's a, a, a picture of how he fulfills that, that hair cutting or a lack thereof uh, in the, of the Nazarites, right? We said probably the picture there is giving God complete control, the whole reins of your life. Again, that's the story of Jesus, isn't it? He comes, and the theme of his days are, right, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Right? He says, I haven't come to, uh, to, 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 to bring my word. I've come to speak what the Father uh, has to say, what he teaches. I've come to do his will. And at the most climactic sacrificial moment there before the cross, um, explicitly saying, not my will, but your will. And, uh, of course, the, the symbolism of the, of the dead bodies and staying away from them. Having to do with, with fleeing from the, the dark things of this world, the sinful, defiling things of this world. And again, Jesus embodies it perfectly. Though he, he draws near to a sinful world, though he draws near to sinners and, and welcomes them to rescue them, 
He is undefiled uh, and yet tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. Uh, always walking in that which is upright. Even his enemies couldn't find a legitimate charge against him because there was none. He was indeed uh, set apart. Hebrews 7, uh, verse 26, gives this great summary of Jesus. And think of how this really embodies the, the Nazarite and what all of God's people were called to be. Hebrews 7 says Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. There's Jesus. And he does it not just to show that it can be done, but he does it in order to rescue us. Uh, in order to accomplish what we have not, uh, in order to bear in his very flesh the, the guilt and the punishment that we deserve for our unholiness, right? That's what he bears there at the cross as the Holy One who is treated as unholy, uh, as the one who is, who is pure and righteous yet treated as if he were not. He's, he's bearing our guilt. He's bearing what we deserve, the death we deserve for our sin, so that he might rise and make us righteous, uh, declare us to be holy, giving us his perfect righteousness. He does it for us, right? There's, there's your hope. There's my hope. We haven't done it, but we look to Jesus. We, 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 we receive and we rest upon him. Uh, here is holiness. Uh, here is being accepted by the Lord and dedicated to him. Christ has done it. We rest in him. Is that your hope? As you think about being right with God uh, in, his, in his camp, you, even for all eternity, if that's, that's the, the hope, the desire, how is that going to happen? Only through the holiness of Jesus and trusting in his work. Right? We receive and rest upon his alone. Paul says, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's, that's what Christ has done. But God's plan for his people is, is not just to sneak them into heaven, give them the golden ticket in. It's also to meet them right where they are in order to uh, not leave them where they are. His plan for us uh, is to transform us into the identity that he's already given us in Christ, which is why the calling for God's people uh, is to more and more live out this holy life. We read this morning from, from 1 Peter 2. Uh, you can see the, the, the most important, uh, for our purposes, verse right at the top of your page there in verse 9. And it's Peter using the exact same language of, of Exodus, as God spoke to his, his people in the wilderness, as God said that they're to be a kind of nation of Nazarites set apart to the Lord. And Peter says... You, Church of Jesus, saved by the, the work of the cornerstone, this is you. He says, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are God's people. You are this holy nation. It's not something we get by, uh, by, by being really good. It's something that, that's a gift that comes through the work of Jesus. But then the, then the calling of that as Peter goes on to say, is, is to live that out. Uh, as, as he goes on to say, you were God's people. Now, what do we do as, as citizens of heaven? We abstain from the passions of the flesh. We keep our conduct honorable, right? We're, we're not trying to earn God's favor, but as those who are already God's people, we, 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 by the power of the Holy Spirit, are being transformed, and we seek to, to live out this new identity, live 
uh, as the holy people that God says that we already are. You could even go back to those three prohibitions of the Nazarites and, again, put the object lesson to, to work in our lives. If you're in Christ, you have this new identity, you are holy unto the Lord. You're his special possession. So you think, okay, how do I live that out? Well, maybe you, you take the object lesson of refrain from wine and, and, and the meaning we're, we're connecting to it, which is that willingness to even put aside good earthly pleasures for a season in order to serve the living and true God. Uh, even putting aside things that are good to, to, to serve in that way that might be better. Maybe God has something like that right in front of you. Uh, an opportunity to serve him, an opportunity to, uh, to serve others in his name, but you know to go down that path is going to mean you're going to have to put some things aside. Uh, good things, legitimate things that God gives to people to enjoy, but if you're going to serve him, you're going to have to, in that way, you're going to have to, at least for a time, put it aside. Uh, are, are, are you willing to do it uh, as, as walking in the way of Jesus? For his strength. Or perhaps we go to that illustration of, of, of cutting the hair or not cutting the hair. right? God having a complete control of your life. Not, not in the sense of we never make any plans. Right? It's good to plan. It's good to dream godly, holy dreams and pursue them with, with zeal. Uh, but, but is the theme of your life that, that prayer of Jesus? Uh, Lord, not my will, but, but your will. I came across this article this week, and uh, even just the title itself grabs you with the idea. Uh, The title uh, was, When God Interrupts Your Productivity. When God Interrupts Your Productivity. Right? You know, you you got the plan. uh, It's a good plan. You're pursuing it in all the details. And then God interrupts. The plan for the day, the plan for the week, maybe the plan for entire life. The point is not don't plan, but the point is the theme of a, of, of a Nazarite holy nation people is, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, is, that, is that your heart? And so when, when God interrupts the productivity uh, this week with something, uh, we're, not, that it won't be e- not that it'll be easy, but we're willing to say, Lord, okay, not my will, your will be done. Keep away from dead bodies, right? The object lesson Staying away from those those things that are that bring death, uh, that that bear the ugliness, the pollution of it, or to use uh, to use Peter's language from verse eleven up top, uh, as sojourners and exiles, as God's set apart people, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Right, all those different things in Scripture that God says that's not good, that's not holy, uh, and God's people. Uh, are called, because they have this new identity, to, to, to flee from it. To, don't touch it. Don't even go near it. Right? Maybe there's a specific thing in your life, and, and God says no. You're, you're tempted to get close. You're, you're tempted to touch the dead body. And here's God encouraging you, uh, run from it. Run from it. Not, not in, in some attempt to impress God and make him love you, no, actually, because he does love you in Christ. Now, because you are already have this new identity, a, a, a child of God. And having that new identity, child of God, 
a part of a holy people, his people. Now, Lord, help me to live this out. Uh, Lord, help me, to, help me to walk in those ways, to reflect who I really am. Uh, and, and, and let's do it together, right? Let's, let's run from the dead bodies together. Come on, because we're all struggling with it. Uh, so so we, we, together as God's people, let's pursue him together. Uh, let's dedicate ourselves uh, to him. Let's, let's set ourselves apart uh, and walk not in the old pictures, right? It's not the outward, don't touch this, don't taste that. Uh, those, those are passed away because now we have Christ fulfilling it and the, and the truer, deeper, more eternal meaning of, of those called to be God's holy people. And perhaps it's a good to end with where the, the Nazarite vow ended. Remember how we said that, that when, the, when that period was over, that period of difficulty, self-denial, struggle, when that period was over, there was this celebration? Well, isn't that our story too? That the period of, of, of sacrifice, the period of, of self-denial and struggle, it's not permanent for God's people. It's not permanent for you, believer. Just like it wasn't for Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, so we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, right? That greater Nazarite and the celebration ending to his life, that's, that's the story that God has written for us, right? So yes, now it's that, that way of the cross, that way of sacrifice, but there's this celebration ending that the deprivation will not be permanent, uh, the difficulty and struggle. There's a celebration ending coming, and we keep our eyes fixed on that to encourage us to press on together as his people. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are a great and merciful God. That you, Lord, rescue your people and do what we could not do. And Lord, you lay out a life that is true life. A life that is bigger and better than anything we could have imagined or dreamed. And Lord, we pray that you would give us renewed faith to trust in the work of Christ, that you would give us renewed zeal, renewed zeal to, uh, to live as his set-apart people, even, even in our day, uh, even in the things you put before us. Uh, we thank you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.